This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, June 8th, 2023. I'm Daniel Carruth. I'm Kyle Kellams. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead on our show, Arkansas ranks 50th in the country in maternal health, but work can be done to reduce the number of maternal deaths in Arkansas. That's part of this week's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report in about 20 minutes on this edition of Ozarks at Large. First, the ability to speak more than one language can be helpful in communicating or getting a job, but there are many other benefits too. In her new book, The Power of Language, Dr. Viarica Marianne examines those advantages that bilingualism or multilingualism can deliver. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith recently spoke with her about the book. Speakers who know two or more languages are deeply affected by that experience, both at the individual level and as a society. It changes how we think about ourselves, our identities. It changes things that we remember, and it even changes our physical bodies. It changes the structure and function of our brains. And those are the kinds of things I discuss in depth in the book. Professor Marianne, this was such a good read. And I think, you said it yourself, there are very few books about and for multilinguals and people who grew up bilingual or knowing more than one language. Tell me about this book, this process, and kind of the big finds that you that you found throughout this research process. Yeah, thank you for asking this question. You started by saying that there isn't a lot out there about this. And that's really how I felt. There is this famous quote by Toni Morrison that if there is a book you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And as someone who spoke more than one language, this is the book I wanted to read. This is the book I wanted to read growing up and being a multilingual adult and knowing that I have a brain that somehow accommodates more than one language at the time, all the time. I live with two languages. What does that do to my mind, to who I am as a person? And I've dedicated my entire life to studying these questions. So I'm a psycholinguist. Psycholinguistics is a field at the intersection of psychology and linguistics. It studies how mind and language interact. Many people are not aware that interaction, it's a bidirectional connection between mind and language. The languages we speak shape how we think and, of course, our our brain produces language. And I I really love that for the listeners out there, and if you get a chance to read The Power of Language, I mean, it, it really does dissect what is physically, what do our brains think of and how does it function as a multilingual, what different areas of the brain are used and kind of breaking that down in, in very digestible layman terms. But also, how does that shape our culture? How does it shape our identity? How do those things in turn feed off of each other? And that was just such, I mean, really, truly such a good read. I really wanted to ask from even, you know, when we think about how we as a society thought about bilingualism, about multilingualism, I mean, even before in the 1960s here in the U.S., you know, bilingualism was considered a handicap in schools, thinking that it would somehow slow a child development by forcing them to expend too much energy distinguishing between languages to like now the developments that we've made throughout technology, through research, saying Actually, it's quite the opposite. Yeah, you're right. And first, I want to thank you for the kind words about my book. I wrote this book precisely for people like us, people who um, have learned or want to learn or know more than one language, who maybe don't even understand what that means and have been exposed to all those negative 
biases that we have sometimes heard growing up. And it's an interesting thing because there seems to be this socioeconomic class divide in how people think about other languages. So if you come from an upper class or upper middle class, you've known that knowing another language is a good thing. It's an enriched cognitive opportunity. It gives you more professional opportunities. It's an economical advantage. It's good for so many things. And you often sign up your kids for language classes and you hire tutors and you send them on exchange program abroad and you travel to other countries. And you really try to raise this cosmopolitan children who are exposed to different languages. And then on the other side, you have individuals from low socioeconomic classes who are often and explicitly told by clinicians, by educators, by society, by cab drivers, by lots of people to not use another language, to just stick with one language and would be told things like, well, your child will be confused if you speak the native language to them at home, which of course is not true. There is no evidence that growing up with two languages will lead to confusion. Any data that finds negative effects from historical, you know, past research usually had that confounded with socioeconomic status, with income, with level of education. And if you factor those variables out, then you don't see any negative effects. On the contrary, you see positive effects. If you look at places like uh, the Quebec area of Canada or many countries in Europe where multilingualism is the norm, you see positive advantages to being bilingual. So... Uh, if you are a parent out there trying to decide if it's a good thing to expose your child to multiple languages, it is absolutely a good thing because it gives your child this rich auditory and a linguistic environment. And the richer the environment, the better it is for the brain, the richer the auditory, visual, tactile, tactile environment, the better it is for our cognitive development. So exposing your child to multiple languages is a wonderful thing. Right. And these are the decisions that people and parents at society faces every day of, do I teach my kids this native language? Do I only speak to them in the primary language that's used? You know, how how do I go about this? Because most of us aren't psycholinguists. But just that idea that these languages and the way that we've learned about them, we've come a long way. How did we get from there to here? And we're still learning more, aren't we? Oh, definitely. And it's interesting that you said societies at the social level, the level of the entire society, we can see differences. We now have data that shows that countries in which two or more languages are spoken have a lower incidence of Alzheimer's than monolingual countries. And there is a direct correlation between the number of languages spoken in a country and the incidence of dementia and Alzheimer's. Because knowing multiple languages is such an enriching experience for our brains and it gives our brain this workout. And I love there's a, a little section in the book that says, think of it this way, both a fit person who regularly does strength training and someone who never exercises can both lift a 20 pound weight. But obviously the fit person is going to have a much easier time with that task. And the multilingual brain doesn't have to work as hard to perform some complicated tasks as a monolingual brain would. I mean, that right in itself is just so fascinating. Isn't it interesting? So here we are speaking. I'm speaking in my third language. I don't know if English is your native language or not. Uh, but if you speak with people who, like if I were to speak with another bilingual, here we are using this 
second, third, fourth, whatever language it might be for that person, while at the same time controlling competition from other languages, making sure they don't suddenly, you know, pop out. Because if I suddenly started speaking Romanian or Russian to you, that would do us little good. <laughs> Your listeners wouldn't be able to understand me. So this experience constantly juggling all the languages that we know, making sure we use the correct one at every given time, it's like a workout for our brains. Absolutely. And I love that you touched on in the different ways in which multilinguals also process things. And one thing that throughout the reading of this book, really the emotions of it, right? The identities that we sometimes bleed into or become new identities or, you know, different parts of ourselves when we're speaking that second, third, different language. And my first language was Spanish. And there's definitely, you know, when I say I love you, any big emotions I immediately think and process them in Spanish because I'm like, these are emotions, they're heartfelt, they're among the first set of vocabulary I learned was these emotions in Spanish. It's really the only, a lot of the big concepts that I was trying to communicate as a child. Whereas, you know, I think of English as differently. I think of it as an, an academic tool, a tool to really, it's easier for me to dissect down ideas using it because that's just what the brain has been used to doing and what it's trained to do. But this identity of how we we mix and intermingle and change part of ourselves and what we sometimes keep throughout all of our languages, it's very interesting. Right. And your personal experience is really a testament to that powerful effect of language that we experience in many bilinguals experience that and feel something like emotions and thinking a little bit different across languages and think that this is a like a unique idiosyncratic experience that they are the only ones to experience and I go into that in the power of language in the book really discussing research that shows that each language functions a frame of reference because it's tied to memories to culture language and culture are so closely connected when we switch languages we become slightly different versions of ourselves different memories come to mind we feel differently we think differently and there are now studies in all of these areas showing that when bilinguals switch languages, they are somewhat different versions of themselves. There's another, just right before you go, for the people who may not be able to relate to, to bilingualism, multilingualism, you know, for the monolinguals out there, I like this idea that you have of codes, of language and how we perceive it. There's so many different ways to perceive it through the visual cues, through all kinds of things. There are these codes around us all the time, and we may know one more language than we may initially think. <laughs> right. So in our conversation today, you and I talk mostly about natural languages, human languages like Romanian, Russian, Spanish, English. But the book considers languages beyond just natural languages and looks at artificial languages like computer codes as languages, at mathematics, math is a language, music is a language. So languages are symbolic systems. Anytime you use a symbol, like a word or a number or a musical note to encode information. So right now, I my mind, my ideas, I encode it in words, and then I transmit them to you for your brains to decode them. So that makes it a symbolic system. Most of us have multiple symbolic systems at our disposal. 
Maybe it's a natural language that we use like English. Maybe it's mathematics that we use to program. Maybe it's music we use to read and write that allows us to communicate across time and space with other beings. So yes, our minds are built for multilingualism. Our brains can integrate this multiple codes of communication to enrich us as individuals and as society. Dr. Marianne, thank you so much for your time. For those who are bilingual, can relate. I mean, really just a very life-changing and such a new and fresh perspective on language and identity and our brains. And for those who don't, you probably do know more languages than you think. And certainly, as this book can tell, there are many benefits. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rachel. I worked for more than 20 years to bring this book to readers. I'm so happy it's finding its readers, The Power of Language. It's available now. Dr. Viarika Marianne is the author of the new book, The Power of Language. She spoke with Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith. This week on the Vinyl Hour, local band Sad Palomino stops by to talk about their new album and the songs that inspired it along the way. I would write the song mostly from guitar. I was writing alone for the most part, so I was always expanding and challenging myself just from the one instrument. That's this Saturday at 5 on KUAF. Still to come this hour on Ozarks, considering Juneteenth. What you're trying to do is influence provides education and influence to the narrative that's able to address whatever the systemic issues and concerns are. So if you have the ear and you have you have the credibility and you have the ear and then you have the action of people that are in some of these decisions and you're working from the top down and the ground up. We'll share an excerpt from the brand new episode of the podcast, The Beloved Community, a co-production of the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council and KUAF. As KUAF celebrates 50 years in Northwest Arkansas and the surrounding region, coming up in June, the last month in our financial year, our goal is to raise an extra $50,000 for public radio programming. And your donation before June 30th will help us toward our goal of raising the necessary funds to keep KUAF as strong as ever. Your gift is more than a donation. It's an investment in keeping national and international reporting accessible to all in creating local news coverage you can trust, and supporting the broadcasting of diverse perspectives from throughout our region. Make your investment today at supportkuaf.com. Northwest Arkansas Pride returns June 23rd through the 25th for its 19th annual Parade and Festival. Other weekend events include the third annual Trans March, Glitterville with drag superstar Daya Betty, and the High Tea Pool Party at Mount Sequoia. More information at nwapride.org or NWA Equality's Facebook or Instagram. KUAF is supported by Format Festival, merging music, art, and technology September 22nd through the 24th in Bentonville. This three-day festival features art installations and experiences from artists including Little Sims, Big Wild, The Far Side, plus a music lineup of over 50 artists. For tickets and information, format-festival.com. This is Ozarks at Large. A just-published study shows telehealth visits for prenatal care increased dramatically in Arkansas during the pandemic year of 2020. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences study found digital prenatal visits in Arkansas before the pandemic at about 1.1% of pregnancies. 
During 2020, that rate jumped to above 17 percent before falling back to about 10 percent by October 21st. The study, published in JAMA Network Open, could help medical professionals design better ways to provide maternal health access. The Federal Railroad Administration of the U.S. Department of Transportation approved a $576,000 grant to improve railroad crossing safety in northwest Arkansas. The funds, which come from the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law, will go toward a northwest Arkansas rail corridor safety study to identify improvements at eight railroad crossings along a 14-mile stretch from Fayetteville to Springdale. The study will determine if the crossings where roads and railroads intersect should be closed or if additional safety measures are needed. The crossing sites are owned by Springdale-based Arkansas and Missouri Railroad. Both Springdale and Fayetteville will pay a 20% non-federal match to help fund the project, according to the Monday news release. Last year, more than 2,000 collisions occurred at highway rail crossings, with Arkansas recording 44 accidents, according to numbers from the Railroad Administration. A resolution allowing Fayetteville's mayor to buy and return real estate to the Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage Association unanimously passed the Fayetteville City Council this week. The structures and land returned to the association are for the restoration, redevelopment, and advancement of the African-American community into a district, according to the resolution. This came after the council expressed support of the association's efforts to stop erasure of the remaining historic African-American community during a May meeting. Bentonville-based Walmart ranks as the 23rd biggest company in the world in the Forbes Global 2000 rankings. The list places Walmart sales at $611 billion with a profit of more than $11.5 billion. Walmart's assets are listed at $243 billion. Tyson Foods ranked 392nd on the global list. The annual list uses four metrics, sales, profits, assets, and market value. Forbes puts J.P. Morgan Chase at the top of the 2023 rankings, followed by Saudi Arabian oil company and China-based ICBC. Earlier this week, the Fortune 500, which ranks the largest corporations in North America by revenue, placed Walmart at the top of that list. It was the 11th consecutive year Walmart has topped the Fortune 500. Tyson Foods ranked 81st on the new Fortune 500. J.B. Hunt Transport Services ranked 311th. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences will host a wellness fair with an emphasis on senior health services for the Latino and Hispanic community tomorrow. The fair at the Schmieding Center for Senior Health and Education in Springdale is from 10 until 2 tomorrow. The event will include free health screenings including blood pressure checks, fall risk assessments, and memory screenings. A longtime Fayetteville tradition helps kick off the summer season tonight. Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis gives us a preview of the 2023 Gully Park Concert Series. For nearly 30 summers, the Fayetteville community has gathered around the Gully Park gazebo every Thursday. The Gully Park Concert Series has become an annual tradition for many Northwest Arkansans. Each week, the free event brings neighbors together for live music and food truck cuisine. Adams Collins plays banjo for bluegrass band Arkansas, a veteran act for the summer series. He says Gully Park's accessibility allows for a wide range of audience members, unlike other venues. We travel all over the country and play all, all types of venues at all hours of the day to any number of people. You know, a lot of those gigs are in bars or clubs and that have age restrictions and um, oftentimes are starting at 9, 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. 
which uh, is fun, uh, but it, it kind of limits who can go uh, to the show. But the great thing about Gully Park is it's, uh, you know, early in the evening, it's a free show, and it's uh, all ages. For many community members, attending the summer concerts has been a lifelong occurrence. Series newcomer and local Americana singer Ashton Barbary says she feels honored to play at the same event she grew up attending. I mean, it's really shocking to me because I used to, I grew up right by Gully Park and every concert, um, me and my mom would always go. We spent a lot of time outside and my mom always supported like local arts and it was a really like great spot to go as a kid. You know, I remember dancing with my friends and coloring with chalk and running around the park and Whenever I was young, I always loved music and art, but I didn't know yet that I would one day um, get to perform in that little um, gazebo. The series begins with a performance from John Fulbright tonight from 7 to 9 p.m. Listeners can stop by Gully Park to hear Arkansas on June 22nd and Ashton Barbary on July 13th. Visit FayettevilleAR.gov for more info. For Ozarks at Large, this is Jack Travis recording from the Bruce and Ann Applegate Studio 2. The rock and comedy duo Tenacious D will be at the Walmart Amp in September. The duo Jack Black and Kyle Gass are scheduled to play in Rogers on September 11th as part of their Spicy Meatball Tour. Tickets go on sale tomorrow through the usual Walton Arts Center outlets. After the first day of the men's NCAA track and field championships, the Arkansas Razorbacks lead the field with 21 points, three more than Stanford and Arizona. Six of the 21 final competitions have been completed. Yesterday, the Razorbacks earned most of their points with a 1-2 finish in the long jump from Kerry McLeod and Wayne Pinnock. It's only the second time teammates have finished first and second in the long jump at the national meet. UCLA did that in 2017. In 1984, by the way, Arkansas had the first and third finishers in the long jump. And the Northwest Arkansas Naturals continue their week-long series in Springfield, Missouri tonight. Last night, the Nats lost 6-4. to The next game at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale is Tuesday night against the Frisco Rough Riders. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. I'm Paul Gatling. There is an effort underway to reduce Arkansas's high maternal mortality rate. Olivia Walton, who is the chair of the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, has lent her influence to the cause. We will hear from Walton on today's show. We will also have some details about a Springdale startup that has abruptly ceased operations. And a new report out says Arkansas leads the country in construction job growth. Those stories are on the way next on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. More at ArkansasStateChamber.com. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield, live fearless. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas, and it shows in your banking experience. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. 
That's because First Security is 100% focused on serving customers all across the state and nowhere else. It's local banking with local commitment. First Security. Bank better. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. According to the most recent statistics assembled from 2018 to 2020, Arkansas averages 40 maternal deaths per 100,000 births, and that is the highest maternal mortality rate in the country. However, a review committee that is raising visibility and hoping for some policy changes believes that trend can be reversed. Roby Brock discussed that subject recently with Dr. Nirvana Manning who is Chair of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UAMS, and Olivia Walton, who has lent her influence to the cause. Walton, of course, is the Chair of the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville. Take a listen. Uh, Olivia, I'm going to start with you. Uh, we, we know Arkansas and the nation is facing a, uh, a maternal mortality crisis here. What got you involved in this in the first place? Uh, well, first of all, Roby, it's great to be back. Yes. Nice to be down in Little Rock uh, and always a pleasure to be with Dr. Manning, who I admire so much. Uh, well, as you know, I now have three little kids. We just had our third baby uh, six months ago, little boy, and he's extremely cute. Uh, so this is really top of mind for me. I'm raising three little children in Arkansas. And as you also know, I'm a former journalist, so I'm always looking for a good story. And I think that this maternal health crisis is one that has been overlooked and is really begging to be told because Maternal health is something that affects all of us. I mean, the ripple effects can be felt throughout societies. Moms are the backbones of families. Moms are the backbones of communities. And this is not just about mothers' livelihoods. Maternal health, I think, is really a key signal of society's health overall. And so, as you said, Arkansas ranks 50th for maternal right. health outcomes. So twice as many women in our state die from complications from childbirth than anywhere else in the country. That is unacceptable. But what gives me hope is that Dr. Manning's Maternal Mortality Review Committee concluded that over 90% of those deaths could be preventable. So we can do something. It's 40 deaths of mothers per 100,000 childbirths 100, in, the, in the state of Arkansas, which is, as Olivia mentioned, double uh, what we see at the national level. Dr. Manning, yes. tell me why we have that and give me some insight on this 90% could potentially be saved. Sure. So again, I, I want to state that we're not unique in that. Um, usually, the southern states, and, and you can look at a map and kind of look where it is, and it um, boils down to several issues. I wish there was just one thing and we could say we fix this and it will all get better, but there's a lot of issues. And with our state that I love, um, it access is hard. We have so many corners of our state that have little to no access to, to, to care at all. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had 39 delivering hospitals. By 18 months into the pandemic, we now have 37. These are access points throughout our state. So every one of those hospitals that close is, is patients that can't get to that area. Um, and you know, as, as we sit in the center at UAMS and take these calls, patients say from Magnolia that need to go get care, it's an hour and a half drive to be able yeah. to get that. And during your pregnancy, I mean, as you know, we all know, it's several visits you've got to get to be able to get that. So, 
you know, access is an issue, the rural aspect of it, um, in, in, in just poverty and access to, you know, the, the quality maternity care that they Personal need. Personal health is a big part of it too. If you go into a pregnancy and you don't have good health, you are not gonna come out of a pregnancy with good health either. And Arkansas has poor health in general. How much of that is a factor in contributing to this potential, I mean, to this problem? Well, it's huge. Um, you know, the acuity of the patients that we have seen, and I've been practicing now for close to 17 years in our state, the acuity from when I started my residency, and by that I mean the incidence of diabetes, hypertension, obesity in our state has increased dramatically. Those significantly affect a pregnancy. Um, as we sit on this maternal mortality review committee, we kind of break down those things and you can see the things that rise to the top. And many of them are absolutely, as you said, pre-existing conditions that if we could have optimized in a better way before they even got into pregnancy, we wouldn't be behind the eight ball nearly as much. One of the, you mentioned that the hospitals closed during, um, that two hospitals closed during mm -hmm. the uh, pandemic, but we also saw an explosion of telehealth mm -hmm. uh, during the pandemic. Olivia, tell me what you think that potential is for telehealth to be transformative in not just addressing this issue, but healthcare in general. Yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity for telehealth to be part of the solution. You know, of course, we are a state that's rural. We're just never gonna have the population density for all of our counties to have a big hospital. Um, and But there are workarounds, so there's promise with telehealth, of course, not everybody in the state does have reliable access to high-speed internet. They're working on that. That's right. So. Hey, we're working on that at Heartland Forward yes. as well, um, trying to expand access to affordable broadband across the state. Um, so there's great opportunity, but maybe the bigger opportunity is really in some of the workforce training. You know, there are some providers, rural, in rural, um, like community healthcare workers, you know, we can train up more doulas, we can train up more midwives. There's several pieces, you know, on the sort of ladder of care that could be accessible to women that we can just, you know, make a couple tweaks with training and reimbursement and really just open up a whole different level of care to women across the state, no matter where they live. And that is Dr. Nirvana Manning with UAMS and Olivia Walton appearing on a recent episode of Capital View with Roby Brock. You can watch the full interview discussing Arkansas's maternal mortality rate and read much more on that topic on our sister website at talkbusiness.net. Springdale-based online grocery startup EasyBins has ceased operations after failing to complete a $2 million Series A funding round. CEO and founder James Farmer said the company laid off its workforce of about 30 employees most of whom were part-time workers. The company completed its last delivery on May 30th. EasyBins offered a grocery delivery service allowing customers to make one order to purchase items from competing retailers, including Aldi, Target, and Walmart. EasyBins launched in 2018. Construction employment increased in 42 states from April 2022 to April 2023, and Arkansas had the country's most significant percentage increase at 9.8%. The Associated General Contractors of America analysis of new government data showed that construction employment in Arkansas increased by 5,500 jobs to 61,900 in the 12 months that ended this past April. And entrepreneurs and researchers looking to commercialize energy technology can attend an upcoming workshop to learn about programs providing federal money for their projects. 
Energy Innovation Day in Arkansas will take place on June 15th at the Arkansas Research and Technology Park in Fayetteville. The Arkansas Small Business and Technology Development Center, the Arkansas Advanced Energy Association, and the University of Arkansas Divisions of Economic Development and Research and Innovation are collaborating to host that event from 9.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can find those stories and more at nwabusinessjournal.com, where you can follow our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. KUAF's Listening Lab is now open. The Listening Lab is a space for honest and intimate conversations to better understand our neighbors and ourselves. It's made possible by the Walmart Foundation. In May, for Mother's Day, we had conversations between two mothers, one with grown children and the other still with children at home. And we've observed Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with discussions as well. And there have been conversations about mental health, too. And we welcome all conversations. Pick your topic and pick your conversation partner. And you can learn more about the Listening Lab and schedule your visit at KUAF.com slash the dash listening dash lab or put KUAF Listening Lab into your search engine and you'll get there. As severe weather becomes more frequent across the U.S., damage from storms and flooding also taking their toll. Now that the government's national flood insurance program has updated its data, officials are urging people outside of normal flood zones to know their risks. Daniel Carruth has more. In 2021, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, made significant changes to the national flood insurance program. The new risk rating 2.0, which went into effect in April, used updated data from scientific projections and GIS mapping to better reflect flood risks across the country. Well, I think uh, the climate crisis is upon us, and as a result, we're seeing more severe, uh, more frequent uh, flood events across the, across the country. We're seeing heavy rainfall events uh, that are causing a, a lot of damage where uh, there may not have been those types of events in the past. And so it's important for people to really understand their flood risk. And quite frankly, it boils down to something as simple as if it can rain, it can flood. And you need to have the flood insurance protection that is so important to help you recover from a flood event. David Merstad is senior executive of the National Flood Insurance Program at FEMA. He says until 2021, the program had used data from the 1970s. He says the updates are more accurate and show that climate change has drastically changed what areas are at risk of flood damage. We work with communities to uh, provide flood insurance uh, rate maps that designate the high-risk area and the low-to-moderate risk area. And then communities are required to uh, adopt uh, local ordinances that regulate the development in those uh, in those high risk areas. So uh, it's a partnership with with communities, uh, but clearly we're seeing um, more development uh, at and near water areas, 
And so because of that, we want to make sure that people understand that regardless of how safe they build in those areas, uh, they're still at risk for flooding and they need flood insurance. Merstad says river flooding has been particularly damaging for many communities that were not considered at risk of flooding before. Flooding, according to numbers from the agency, is the U.S.'s most frequent and expensive disaster, costing some $850 billion to U.S. taxpayers since the year 2000, which is about two-thirds of the total cost from all natural disasters. One inch of water... Uh, can cause up to $25,000 worth of, of damage to your to your home. So it doesn't take a lot of water. Many of these flood events, you know, you'll see a foot, two feet of water in, in people's homes and, and businesses. So uh, it's very important to understand, the first of all, that it can happen, and then making sure that you have the necessary insurance protection And he says most people don't think about flood insurance until it's too late. While many people believe that their homeowners, their renters, their small business policy covers them for flood, they call their insurance agent, insurance representative, and ask them, they'll find out that generally speaking, it's excluded. And so you need a separate flood insurance policy uh, from the National Flood Insurance Program or from a private insurance company. But it's most important to understand with the National Flood Insurance Program, there's a 30-day waiting period. And so you can't, uh, unlike other policies, you can't just go and buy it and it goes into, goes into effect today, right now. Uh, there's a 30-day waiting period. The only requirement for the National Flood Insurance Program is to live or own property in one of the communities that participates in the program. In one of the 22,500 communities across the United States, Uh, Regardless of where you're located in that community, regardless of whether you have a mortgage or you don't, you're eligible to buy a national flood insurance uh, policy. We encourage people to contact the the same agent they use for their other insurance needs. If that agent doesn't provide uh, flood insurance, you can go to our website, floodsmart.gov, and there's an agent locator on in that website to help you find an agent to help make sure you have the the right uh, amount of coverage and the right coverage in place to protect you and the life that you've built. And Marstead says during severe disasters, the government is able to offer some assistance. But with the number of disaster events on the rise, the threshold to meet that demand is higher. There is some limited individual assistance grants that FEMA provides so that people have uh, some resources for those immediate emergency needs. It's not intended and certainly isn't enough to repair or rebuild a flooded uh, property. So it's important to uh, recognize what one's risks are and the steps they need to take to make sure that they're protected. For more on the National Flood Insurance Program and to see participating communities, you can visit FloodSmart. Gov. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Daniel puts together his reports in the Karen Taha News Studio. Theater Squared presents Violet, the powerhouse Broadway musical from the Tony Award-winning composer of Fun Home. When Violet hops onto a Greyhound bus traveling across Arkansas towards a miracle in Tulsa, it turns into the journey of a lifetime. On stage through July 2nd, 777-7477 or 
theater2.org for tickets. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Diego Rivera's America, the first major exhibition focused solely on the Mexican artist in over 20 years. It features his works, digital projections of his murals, and three major paintings by Frida Kahlo. On view now through July 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, we'll review a week's worth of news with Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics. And we'll assess where the planet is when it comes to climate change. We're living in what you might call um, emergency, emergency time, an emergency moment. And we need to be uh, address it with an emergency mindset, uh, kind of like we did in World War II, where we mobilized you know, the entire economy and uh, all of society and a, and, a, and a united national common purpose. A conversation with Andrew Boyd about his new book, I Want a Better Catastrophe in which he argues we've passed some critical markers already for our future, and now it's time to consider how we mitigate the changing climate. That's on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. You can carry us with you by using the free Ozarks at Large podcast. In the background is pianist Aaron Goldberg doing Way, Way Back. And I'm Robert Ginsberg, your host for Shades of Jazz. On this edition of the show, we'll hear more from Goldberg as well as Dizzy Gillespie, Toninho Horta, Robert Glasper, Dexter Gordon, and much more. Join me Friday and Saturday for Shades of Jazz. The latest episode of the podcast, The Beloved Community, is about to be available. It's a co-production of the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council and KUAF. This month, host Lindsay Leverett Higgins and Chris Seawood talk with Dr. Danielle Williams, the chair of the Northwest Arkansas Juneteenth Committee. Juneteenth has been part of my life, I guess, since I was a child. My dad, I mean, that's something that I guess is always, I've always had an affinity for because my dad, uh, who has since passed away, he was the chair of the, of the Juneteenth Committee in Fort Smith. Mm. <laughs> for, and so Juneteenth has always been a part of my life in some way, shape, or form. Um, but so, I mean, as far as its recognition, I guess, too, in its same vein, I am happy that it was recognized by our previous administration. But far as its relevance and significance in my in our community, I don't think it's changed at all much. I mean, what does it, what does it do? It does give better give more exposure. Um, to other audiences and other other communities, I guess, uh, for those that recognize it, they may get a day off mm. <laughs> for that. Uh, and I think, it, in a way, it does send a message to the ty- to the type of importance that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does do that. Um, but far as those that really know and understand what Juneteenth is and have celebrated it for many years, it not it it may it may have made a significant difference to some but not a significant difference to those that have known it and understood it for a long time. Do you feel like the importance of the celebration of Juneteenth is lost or was lost by the Black and African American community when it became recognized as a national holiday? Do I think it became lost? The importance of of why it's celebrated. Do you think that it, in a sense, God, 
watered down, watered down mm -hmm. from the recognition of celebrating the day that slaves in Texas found out about the Emancipation Proclamation or found out that they were free to becoming more of an alternative celebration to the 4th of July for people of color or for African Americans? Well, I mean, if you're saying that, do I think the lens that African Americans look at it from a different lens now that it's a federal holiday versus the 4th of July? Um, I don't know if it's changed. I don't think it has. I don't think it's, it's, in my personal opinion, I don't think it's changed significantly because those that know and understand what Juneteenth is about and have celebrated it and understands its significance, um, it's been, it's always been there. Um, I think, as, as I said, I think it, it caused more exposure to those that don't understand um, what Juneteenth was or what Juneteenth is all about. Um, so for those that understand and know black history and black culture I would and understand its significance, I would say no. But those that don't understand, and I don't think that transcends any race, any background, if they didn't understand what Juneteenth is about, I think— um, they would have to know and understand the, the history to understand it on their own, if that makes sense, what I'm saying. So I'm not sure if it so, quote-unquote, waters it down, uh, because I don't think in this case you have to choose. I mean, why do you have to choose? Because um, the 4th of July, you know, is a celebration for something else, mm -hmm. whereas in historically in the African-American culture, it's a celebration for something else. So I don't think it has to be watered down. I think it has to be, it was an opportunity for it to be elevated more than watered down, in my opinion. So as we think about from the perspective of balance, how do we really balance the importance of celebrating these, celebrating and honoring these national moments in our history like Juneteenth, like Black History Month? with understanding that we still have a long way to go as a community. Okay. So when you use when you're saying balance, that's that's kind of where my mind was was how do we balance, you know, all the other um special observances and holidays and things like that and understanding like you said that we have, you know, we have work to do. Um I think one acknowledging that we have work to do. <laughs> And then understanding that, you know, it's not about, as the three of us have worked, you know, many years on MLK holiday, and that we spend an enormous amount of time uh, leading up to the uh, holiday celebration and doing other events and activities around that to commemorate the, the legacy of Dr. King. I think as we've talked about even in the council conversation, is that it's not about those specific days. Mm -hmm. It's the everyday. Mm -hmm. It's the, you know, what are we doing to acknowledge the, the life, the legacy, the understanding of the culture on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. And how do we integrate that in our daily lives? How do we integrate that in, in our work capacities? How do we integrate that in how we're teaching our families and our children? So, I think if it's something just like anything else, <laughs> if it's like anything else, if it's important to us, we're going to take time to do it. And I think the everybody here, and this is my, again, this is not speaking for the committee. This is not, this is speaking, oh, sorry, this is speaking for Danielle. I think we, we, we are so, lives are busy. 
<laughs> Lives are busy. And I think we have to think about how we are going to spend the time doing certain things that are cert- that are important to us. And I think sometimes we require a lot of our respective communities understanding they are their individuals, one, that do a lot. They're being pulled right and left like Madam President over here mm-hmm. <laughs> that has a lot going on and wondering how she even sleeps. Um, and people say sometimes the same with me. How do you sleep? I said, trust me, Danielle sleeps. Um, but I think, too, it's like, it's also that education, education and awareness piece is that how are we engaging people that may not know and understand to get them to understand the importance and significance? Because we all certain people can't just do it. So to have balance, to have elevation, it's learning how we can best educate others to sometimes help in this process. So how do we kind of still along those lines, Danielle, how do we position Juneteenth as a celebration, but not only Juneteenth? I mean, as you also brought up, uh, even our MLK celebration and others, um, how do we continue to position those celebrations or um, annual recognitions um, to ensure that we um uh, place or highlight or keep the highlight of issues such as racial injustice um, and other issues at the forefront of um, of our celebrations so that they are not just one-offs and they're not just feel-goods. I mean, we want people to come to the celebrations. Yes, we want them to have, um, obviously, feel-good opportunities. We want people to come out to the Juneteenth celebration and obviously have a great time. I mean, and I think, um, and I know Music Moves has announced the lineup for the entertainment, et, et, et cetera. There's going to be great food. Our MLK celebrations are always grand times, great celebrations, great times to honor people in the community, et cetera. But how do we also keep at the forefront that these are also movements and we want our community to, like you said, on a day-to-day basis to stay engaged. There's two things typically that, uh, well, really there's three two that, that can shift. There's, um, there's education, there's awareness, and there's action. Um, and I say that because, one, it always has to be a constant part of the narrative, whatever that may be. If it is a part of... The feel-good activities where we're announcing things from the dais or we are, you know, having conversations with key stakeholders throughout the year. Uh, We're providing education opportunities for people to understand in various forums. It's not – it's the podcast. It's the – the uh, um, outreach activities that, like, MLK does, like we do throughout the year. It's – trying to integrate things within certain organizations that have uh, individuals that are are key decision makers. Mm -hmm. Because what you're trying to do is influence, provides education and influence to the narrative that's able to address whatever the systemic issues and concerns are. So if you have the ear, 
and you have you have the credibility and you have the ear and then you have the action of people that are in some of these decisions and you're working from the top down and the ground up because you know if you work from the top down and circle down you're going to work from the ground up eventually if it's done right you're going to meet it in the middle and it's then it's all going to be one it's all going to be very uh, concentrated so if you're utilizing you know your words and you're educating and you're following up with action and it's not just one time a year but you're in doing things in different forward forums that meet the needs you know what i mean as as you know, as believers, and I get things I can say this, as believers, you know, one thing we do, we meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, right, we meet people where they are. So it's not about what we feel like is easy mm-hmm. uh, to get the message, but sometimes it may require a little bit more work mm-hmm. that is going to reach the communities that uh, need to hear it. Mm-hmm. And that's going to look differently depending on who the individuals are, if it's individuals in the C-suite, if it's individuals that, if it's students, if it's those that are in under underserved or marginalized communities, it might look differently. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're going to be impactful, mm-hmm. you got to look at things um, from various ways and look at it from um, not what's easiest and from the norm. So it has to be uh, the education, the communication, and the action. Daniel Williams is the chair of the Northwest Arkansas Juneteenth Committee. The entire conversation with Lindsay Leverett-Higgins and Chris Seawood can be heard on the latest episode of The Beloved Community, a podcast co-produced by the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council and KUAF. You can find all of KUAF's podcast productions online at KUAF.com when you click the Listen tab. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Heiko. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Jack Travis, Paul Gatling, Roby Brock, and the host of the beloved community, Lindsay Leverett-Higgins and Chris Seawood. Additional support today came from Sophie Narani, Lee Wood, and Stephanie Brock. Our theme is written and produced by Daryl Sean. Our membership director is Brett Ratliff, and he is your liaison to KUAF membership. You can always support your public radio station safely and easily at supportkuaf.com. Today's show was produced inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. I'm Daniel Carruth. I'm Kyle Kelms. Have you ever been to Heiko? Never been to Heiko. I bet you have. Have I? Uh, Have you been to Solemn Springs? Okay, yeah. It's kind of what (laughs) Heiko became, Solemn Springs. Good Uh, to know. Yes. (laughs) I'm Kyle Kelms. Thanks so much for listening.